Have you ever wondered why it seems that Jesus, after he performs a miracle, at least sometimes, then tells everybody who saw that miracle not to tell anybody what they saw? This seems very uh, counterproductive to our brains, to our reason. This seems to be counterintuitive. Wouldn't you want to tell everybody about this? This would be good for the cause. Now, of course, Jesus knows since we are by nature gossipers, they're going to tell anyway, right? Um, and it certainly does prove that he is divine, but it's still curious why he doesn't want to be known as the miracle worker. Why not? I suppose there's a few reasons. One is people see miracles all the time. You can think about, at least back then, you could think about the Pharaoh, and yet he did not trust God. I think another reason is he doesn't, he doesn't want to be a horse and pony show. He's not just here for, for a show. He's here for something else. I think maybe one of the main reasons is that he wants to be known not so much as the miracle worker, but the guy dying on the cross. Don't you know? that the Son of Man has to suffer many things, he says repeatedly. But perhaps there's one more reason why he doesn't want to be known as the miracle worker primarily, and that's because he wants to deal with us primarily with words. With words. He wants to deal with us with words. And I think that makes sense if we go all the way back to Genesis 1 and we see at the beginning there was these words. There was the word. I would maybe go so far as to say that we are people in, with, and under words. That's one of the best ways to describe what a human being is. We are created by word. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God's word has creative power. It can create out of nothing let there be light, and there is light. At baptism, he says, let there be a Christian. When the word of God in absolution is spoken, he is saying, let there be a Christian out of nothing, out of a dead heart, I will create a living faith. And so from the very beginning, we're about words, God's creative word, and then he created us to interact with each other with words. Now you may be thinking, oh, but I dream in color. Well, good for you, but how are you going to explain it to me? through words, and we are to take him at his word. It's words everywhere, words all around us. And you could maybe make the claim that the whole story of the Old Testament, first of all, it's getting to Christ, but all these characters are trying to help along God's word. Instead of taking God at his word, they try to help God's promise word. So Abraham is told in his old age that he will have a child, and he and his wife are really old, like great-grandpa and grandma old, well beyond menopause. And so they decide with their reason, this is not how babies are normally made, just with a promise this is how you do it, and so they devise a plan of human devising. They try to help along God's word, and that's hard, because when I look at God's word, sometimes my limited reason just cannot understand. And we live in the therefore. This is how we normally conduct our lives. We live in the realm of the therefore. We say, 
Here's the evidence that came through my senses. And then I look at my experience and I look around me and I reason and I say, therefore, A and then B, therefore, C. I live in the therefore. And it's pretty useful for the most part. But once in a while, God says not therefore, but nevertheless. And so we ought to live in the nevertheless. God says to Abraham and Sarai, I know you're old, nevertheless. Nevertheless. Let me give you kind of an analogy. I think we should distinct, uh, make a distinction between eyeballs and eardrums. When I think about eyeballs, I think about that system of therefore, that I take in information through my eyes and then I rationalize and I start thinking therefore. But I don't really, I really shouldn't believe with my eyeballs. I should believe with my eardrums because faith comes from hearing the message and in my ear God says, nevertheless. Let's talk anthropology for a second, and I'm going to take on a task that I, you know, didn't know that I was going to be so difficult uh, today. I'm going to make the case for high anthropology. <laughs> Don't worry, it won't be, I won't contradict Zoll. Uh, that was wonderful. What I mean by high anthropology in a very limited sense, as opposed to low anthropology, and we have a low anthropology, what I mean by that is that we're pretty darn special. And we are highly valued by God. We're something different than the dead rocks or the living trees or even the smart animals like the dolphin. And that comes from outside of us. It comes from outside of us in this gift called the imago dei, the image of God. Adam and Eve were, were created with original righteousness in the perfect image of God that was lost and the whole story of the Old Testament is God trying to give us back that righteousness through Christ. Righteousness, by the way, is always a gift. It was a gift to Adam and Eve. They lost it. And it is a gift to us through Christ. But even, even for the non-Christian who has not been redeemed and been given back that righteousness, there's still a shell. There's still something about this thing called the image of God. There's something more than the squirrels. And they know it. They know it. They know they're important. And being created in the image of God has, it comes with all of this beauty and creativity and rationality and drama. It's a really complicated and very, very value giving thing. We have a very high anthropology. We're very, we're very special. And some of this, it's not limited to this, but some of it, the specialness is about reason. We are reasonable creatures. It's a very big deal. But we also have a low anthropology, and after the fall, that, that great tool, reason, is now used in an arrogant way. It's not just that we have a limited reason. We don't have the perspective of God. He's up here and we're down there. It's that we are arrogant towards God. And I can't help but think about the Tower of Babel incident. And one of the most fascinating parts of Scripture is when these people start to build up into heaven, 
and, and we get an insight into the conversation between the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as they're talking, it almost seems that they are afraid of their creation. Who knows what they can do? We need to go down and we need to stop them. It seems very odd that God would somehow fear his creation. But if you understand that we're created in the image of God with an immense amount of power, a lot of it packed into this thing called reason, you can understand what damage we can do. The capacity you individually have for evil is bone-chilling. It was not the great tyrants of the history of the world that carried out the, the horrific genocides of our history. It was regular people like you and me. Your ability to do evil is bone-chilling because you have a high value, you have a high anthropology in that sense that you can do a lot, you have power. And notice, by the way, how God stopped the Babel architects. Not with legions of angels, not with an earthquake or a lightning bolt. He attacked their most precious thing. He attacked their words. And I wonder if there's a parallel with Elijah, Elijah after the Mount Carmel so-called victory, which wasn't much of a victory after all, and he's hiding and God does not come in the wind and the fire, but it comes with a gentle whisper that God tends to come and wants to deal with us with words in this gospel sense to Elijah. But in this Tower of Babel incident, he comes also with words in a law sense. This is God's most powerful thing. So maybe that's why Jesus said miracles. Ah, are you kidding me? I shake those out all the time. Words, that's where the real power is. So we have a very low anthropology. And maybe let me take it one step further. We are the types of beings that are justifiable, and we are the types of beings that seek justification. You've heard of the uh, the phrase that we are homo sapiens, right? We're the types of beings that use wisdom, although sometimes I'm not quite sure, right? Maybe maybe even digging deeper, we are homo justificans. We are the types of beings that are that are seeking justification and are justifiable. Justifiable in the sense that, yes, God is going to redeem the whole world. He died for the whole world, but specifically he didn't really die for the rocks and the plants and the dolphins as much as he died for us personally, that we have this value that, that he, he seeks to justify us. We're justifiable in that sense. The, the tragedy is that we try to justify ourselves. And if you're honest with yourself, it's every moment of every day you're trying to seek value for yourself from yourself. It's why we gossip. Because then I have value in that little group. It is why we do so many things as we compare ourselves to each other. And it's a double tragedy. First, it's a tragedy that we cannot make ourselves right. That's all justification means, trying to make ourselves right. That we can't be for God, and the second tragedy is we don't have to, because righteousness is always a gift. It's always a gift. So this is where that high anthropology and that low anthropology comes together in a disaster. That now I'll employ this thing called reason, in my attempt to justify myself. 
So I have this high anthropology where I have so much power in, invested mostly in this uh, capacity to reason much more than, than even the animals. But now I'm going to use it in an arrogant way, in a way, in a self-justifying way. But let's not blame reason just yet. Reason is God's good gift. I would rank it third behind life itself and, of course, grace in Christ. I would say number three is the gift of reason that God has given to us. And God's good gifts are exactly that. They are good. And we see people that are reasoning in the Scripture. And Paul reasons with the people in the synagogue. And he went to the Areopagus and he, and he reasoned with those people. So then how do we think about this relationship between reason and revelation. And I think, I think what's at core here is the idea that I take my reason all the way up until I bump up to revelation, and then I stop. I stop at, thus saith the Lord. And when I do that, God is not just saying, take me at my word. You little child, you don't have the perspective like we do with our children. You don't have the perspective yet, the experience. Sometimes it's not just God saying, take me at my word. Sometimes he is saying, it's not your business. This ain't your business. When, when Adam and Eve worshipped, they went to the first Lutheran church of Eden. I assume that's the name. And where they went was those two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and, and worship really finally when you boil it down is trust. It's, it's really two things. It's receiving God's good gifts from us, from him, and then taking him at his word, trusting. So they went to the tree of life and they communed with God. They ate with him. They received good things from him. This is what you do on Sunday. But then they went to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they were to trust. It's not our, God says it's not your business. There are some things you don't need to know. Take me at my word. It's not your business. Let's get systematic for just a little bit, doctrinal a little bit. Uh, we talk about the uses of reason in two ways. We have, on the one hand, a magisterial use of reason, and on the other hand, a ministerial use of reason. When we, when we talk about ministerial, we see the word minister there that just means servant. It means service. And so we use reason in service of understanding God's revelation. So when I read scripture and I look at the printed words there and they come into my brain and I know that they, it signifies something else, like the, the word run, R-U-N, signifies somebody running, I'm using my reason. When I, when I go through a concordance and I try to find all of, the, all of the passages on baptism to wrap my head around this miracle, I'm using my reason in service of understanding revelation. But then there is the magisterial use, and we see the word majesty there. That's king, that's ruler, and this is the inappropriate use of reason when it comes to revelation because it rules over revelation and says, now I take revelation, God's word, all the way up until it bumps into my reason. And I say that's a nice story until I get to the part about water being turned into wine. 
or the Red Sea splitting in two. And I reason it must just be an analogy, a picture, a trope, or something like that. Or the craziest one, um, when God says that grace is free, I reason it cannot be because nothing's for free. And in a way, it's not just a misuse of reason, and this is our high anthropology and low anthropology coming together in a mess. It is me saying to God, it's not your business how I believe. It's not your business. Instead of God saying, take reason to all the way up until you bump up to Revelation where I say, not your business. Now we take reason until or revelation until it bumps up to reason, and we say, God, it's not your business what I think and what I believe. Maybe just two quick words on philosophy and apologetics, because uh, those are related, even though that's not my topic. I I think, first of all, we get really irritated about philosophy and apologetics, especially in the Lutheran Church, um, because we don't, and, and because we don't want to We don't want to take credit away from the Holy Spirit. We always understand that you can't reason somebody into faith. And yet, we have to do philosophy. Let me read from 2 Corinthians 10.5. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And so, we have two options, and one of the options is not to not do philosophy, because if you have a brain, you are already a philosopher. And so the difference is, do I do philosophy according to Christ, or do I do philosophy according to the world? Who is going to take my thoughts captive? This imaginary thing called pure reason, or Christ? And we always have to do philosophy, even when you open up Genesis 1 and 2, you're already doing philosophy because you're asking an epistemological question. That's a fancy way of saying, how do we know what we know? And, and, and hermeneutics, that's the study of interpretation. We have to make some decisions here to say, when I'm reading 1 Samuel, that's history. I take that literally. But I, when I get to Revelation, that is something different. I take that symbolically. And there wasn't a Genesis chapter 0 that told us that, right? God gave us this reason to reason it through. Now, apologetics for a second. We get very worried about this attempt to try to reason somebody into faith, but a good apologist doesn't never think that way. He knows, she knows, that the Holy Spirit is the one that creates faith. And I'm beginning to think that apologetics, a good definition of apologetics is this, that it is a well-rounded liberal arts education employed for the purpose of evangelism that I'm a well-rounded person enough that I'll talk science with you. I'll stay in my lane and say I don't know what's going on always. But if you want to talk art or philosophy, if you want to talk math or whatever, I'll play with you. I'll talk to you about this, and I'll talk about God, and I hope that then there will be an opportunity for the gospel where the Holy Spirit will do his work. Finally, finally, apologetics is a ministry of caring. And we we care enough about people's objections. And and we know that they're in the realm of the therefore. And I'll play in the realm of the therefore reason for a while. 
But eventually I want to say to them, but nevertheless, there is love from God. Let's go back to anthropology. We're sinner saints simultaneously. Sinner saints, just a review of that. That means I'm 100% sinner all the time, but I am also in Christ 100% saint all the time. And I know the math doesn't work out, but it sure explains my life. And I know it explains your life. That one moment you can be a delight and the next moment you are something else. And another way to talk about this symbol, simultaneously sinner saint, is that we're simultaneously believers and unbelievers. The sinner's an unbeliever. God, help me with my unbelief, we hear in both the Old and the New Testaments. The saint always trusts thoroughly. There's no options how it is. So when I think about that, first of all, I think about how everybody's a believer. I think it's a... Uh, it's shorthand when we say that person's an unbeliever. It's shorthand for he doesn't trust God because he still believes. The atheist believes in something. She believes, she trusts. She trusts her reason or she trusts when she reads this, this scientific journal that that person knows what they're talking about. I trust that there's not going to be a sinkhole that falls here if I step over here. I'm trusting all the time. Everybody's a believer. The question is not are you a believer or not a believer, but what do you believe or better yet, whom do you believe? So Abraham reasoned that God could not open up his dead wife's womb, right? She's called dead, and he is called dead. He reasoned, and so he did it the normal way babies are made. When that baby grew up, God said, kill that baby, which is awful on the face of it, It's a special horrific to kill your own child. But Abraham reasoned, according to Hebrews, Abraham reasoned that if he would do this, he would kill the one and only son of the promise, right? This is your promise, God. Why are you doing this? That there would be a resurrection. The saint reasoned in that situation with Hagar and Ishmael, The sinner was reasoning. So maybe it's not so much that it's reason's fault, but it's my will, my desire, my arrogance towards God that turns that reason into a tool of low anthropology that turns into a sinful, arrogant thing that dares to say, God, your promise isn't good enough. I need to take matters into my own hands. Let's talk just the bound choice or bound will for a second. When we teach about the bound will versus uh, free, free will, we often start with there's things above and things below. When it comes to things above, think spiritual things. Uh, um, can I uh, choose not to sin? Uh, well, on the face of it, no, because I would have already chosen righteousness if I could have. And I can't choose grace because, well, that it wouldn't be grace anymore, right? This is an unconditional love. And then when I teach this in, in, on the college level, I say, now, but there's things below, right? You have, 
you have free will when it comes to certain things. For instance, today I have the ability to choose between eating a salad or Burger King. And then I turn this way and I go, but do I really? But do I really? And I think the secular world, if it's honest with itself, and there are many atheists who are honest about this point, realize that free will is a bit of an illusion. Jonathan Haidt, an atheist, would say our reason is like a monkey on top of an elephant, and the elephant is our emotions, our desires, maybe I would say our will, and the reason's trying to control the elephant. When you go to the... We're not very good at reason is the point. And I don't know that we really always have this idea, even in things below, this free will. When you go to the department store and you see those new pair of jeans that are marked $500, but they're all the way marked down to $179 just for you on this day, you know that you're still getting a very, very bad deal. But there you are buying them and bragging to your girlfriends or your boyfriends that you got to steal on this pair of jeans that probably cost $199 to make. We're not very good at reason. But we don't want to fall into the trap of fideism either. So I got rationalism on this one side where even in the secular world we understand, even if we we have this beautiful thing called reason, we're not very good at employing it. But I don't want to fall into the ditch on the other side of the road, which is fideism, which just says you turn your brain off and you believe, and if you believe it, therefore it's true. And I think this is, this is this tension that we see in the Bible, that God does not leave us without testimony, despite the fact that he says, just trust. He doesn't leave us without testimony. And it, I, more and more, I think God respects us, which seems crazy because we don't deserve that respect. But isn't that how we should act with each other, that I respect you? You may lose that respect, but you should never have to earn that respect because you're created in the, in the image of God. How dare I? How dare I say, you need to earn respect for me? And I think he respects us enough sometimes to give us what we keep asking for. He gave Israel a king after they whined and whined and whined, even though he said, I'm your king. Problem is not you have a king. Problem is you're not listening to your king. And he finally gives it to them. And if you're a parent or a grandparent, you know exactly what I mean, that you do respect your children enough to say, here you go. This is going to blow up in your face, but here you go anyway. So I think God respects us in this sense, a little different way, where he says, I'm going to give you testimony. Christianity is a claim on religion. Peter, in his second letter, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories when We told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I give you eyewitness testimony. I give you the testimony. I know that your reason will mess it up, but I'm still going to give you this testimony. Christianity is a claim on religion, and that makes it different than any other philosophy or religion. And I'm not bagging on any other religion here. I'm just saying it's not their thing. It doesn't really matter if Buddha said what he said, or even if the original Buddha actually existed or not, because Buddhism still stands as a philosophy. 
It's, it's, a, it's an overarching story that gives me a problem, a solution, a beginning, and, and a sense of belonging, kind of a moral code, sort of. It still stands whether things happened in time and space or not. Not so for Christianity, St. Paul's said in 1 Corinthians 15, this is my translation, if you show me the dead bones of Jesus, the gig is up and you shouldn't believe the lie. In fact, you're kind of an idiot if you do, right? So God gives us testimony then. But he's got to give us the spirit too because we'll misinterpret the testimony. Also from Paul, 1 Corinthians 2, for who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, the realm of the therefore, but the spirit who is from God, nevertheless, that realm, so that we may understand, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, therefore, but in words taught by the Spirit, nevertheless. Explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Now, I think this analogy that Paul uses is a bit clumsy, um, I'm going to put it into a modern way. Um, I'm not sure about this, but I did run this by uh, a seminary professor a few years ago, and he said it was okay. So, all right. Imagine this guy walks into this room. He is uh, 6'4", uh, 290. Uh, he's built, uh, pretty ripped, and of course, he's wearing a skin-tight shirt. And he's got the requisite barbed wire tattoo under it, says cliche, you know, anyway. And the, the tight shirt says, San Diego State Aztecs football. And I see the outside of him. I see his physical form. And I make certain conclusions about that. Um, I know they may not be exactly right, but I'm in the realm of the therefore. And so I say he's probably a defensive lineman for the local football college team. Yeah. But then he talks to us, and it turns out he's in the ballet, knits, and loves his grandma. And all of our prejudices were proven wrong. In order to know that human being, I needed to know his soul, his spirit, his non-physical thing. I needed to know him. And I'm not saying that the body doesn't matter. We're not Gnostic. But the, the point is, is that I, I'm always going to make some false conclusions by only seeing physical things. I look at God's physical world, and these are, not, these, are, these are not foolproof arguments, like the cosmological argument for the existence of God. But I can reason that somebody made this place, and that something that he, she, or it's got to be pretty darn powerful and pretty darn smart and all those kinds of things. I can make some fairly reasonable kind of conclusions, at least guesses about that. But I don't really know God. I'm never going to know love. I'm certainly not going to know Jesus Christ by just looking at God's physical world, his natural law, the order of things. In fact, I'll only end up in law 
because I will see hurricanes and tornadoes and come to a wrong conclusion that God hates all of us. So how am I going to know the true God? I need to know his soul or spirit. This is where it gets a little clumsy because we don't talk about that. That's, but you see the analogy there, that I need to know the spirit. And by the way, how did I get to the spirit, the soul of that guy? Words. And how am I going to get to know God through his spirit? Words. It's always words. These words are written that you might believe, that we would believe. Faith comes from hearing. And what faith does is it kills my reason's unreasonableness. Because your so-called reason, if you're honest with yourself, is very unreasonable. It's very unreasonable for Abraham to say, God doesn't know what he's talking about. God, I need to show you how to make children. It's very unreasonable. Faith kills reasons unreasonableness. So maybe the problem isn't so much reason, but again, the sinful use of reason. And the sinful use of reason is to consider it autonomous. That is, reason going it alone. Now, the history of philosophy in 30 seconds is this. That how, uh, we start with a uh, main question, how do we know what we know? And how do we ground our knowledge? What's the foundation of that? And so uh, the, po- the Enlightenment Project was an attempt to, to say reason itself can fix all of our problems. Reason itself is enough. We don't need the superstitious past. But even those Enlightenment thinkers right away said, hold on for a second. When you think about it, reason doesn't have a reason, ironically, to justify itself. Because I can always say, how do you really know? How do you really know? Can you really trust your eyeballs and your senses? Because we can think of all sorts of examples in science and in philosophy in your own day-to-day life where your senses trick you. And so reason itself can only really come to one conclusion that reason cannot justify itself, ironically. And this has been thoroughly bandied about for hundreds of years. And I think the honest philosopher says, yeah, it's hard. And yet here we still are using words and talking to each other. And generally, we kind of know what's going on in the world. So where is that foundation? Where is that objective truth that I can, I can ground my knowledge and my reason, even as I use it improperly as a sinner, but I can use it properly as a saint? How about St. Paul? Again, somewhere here. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. 
Your Jesus is your Alpha and your Omega, your beginning and your end, but he's also everything in between. And since all things were created for him and through him and hold together in him, he's the reason two plus two equals four and not 70 million, and why up is up and down is down. All knowledge is Christological knowledge. Even for the atheist, he just doesn't know it because all knowledge came through him. How about John 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word, you already know, I'm sure, the Word in English that we use for Word in Greek is logos. And logos is a funny word that can mean all sorts of things, calculation, reason, order, it's kind of where we get the word logic. It's related to that. Or, or all the ologies. If I want to study the order of animals, I study zoology. If I want to study the order of life, I study biology. And the Greeks had this thing called the logos, this concept, almost a divine thing that, that ordered this world. They understood that they couldn't just say, my reason was enough, that there was something that ordered this place. There was a there was a reference point that the person in Egypt and the person in Greece could point to to say this is like the sun that says this is how the world operates. And it wasn't just a static thing. It had some activity to it, this logos. It could move. It it had something going on, a power almost. There was a guy named Heraclides. You know him even if you don't know him. Greek philosopher, worked in and around Ephesus, and he famously said, you can't step into the same river twice. So if I step in a river and I step out and I step right back in, the river has changed. Everything's in flux. And, and people take that to say, see, how do we know anything? How can we even do scientific inquiry because things are always changing? Could we really know what truth is? Can we really trust words? Because there's always so much baggage of culture. There's so much baggage, our own personal biases. Can we know anything? But Heraclides actually said, you can't step in the same river twice, so don't listen to me, listen to the logos. But nevertheless, almost, nevertheless, there is an orderer and it's an active thing, this thing called logos. Now, I can't prove this because I don't, I can't get into the mind of John the Evangelist, but he worked in and around Ephesus. And I just wonder if hundreds of years later, the idea of Heraclides was just still around. And so when John decides to write his gospel in his old age, he says, you know what I'm going you know to do? I'm going to say in the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was with God. So far, so good. And the Lugus was God. The Greeks are like, I'm not quite sure. And then you jump down to verse 14, and it says, Then the Lugus took on flesh and tabernacled uh, among us. You want to talk about Lugus? Guess what? I met him. And he is a person. And the Lugus has a face. God has a face which would have been totally against the Greek idea that the body was some kind of a prison and bad. There's so many implications there. 
I have the orderer, I can know the orderer, I can know the word, I can take God at his word, and it's the grounding for all of my words, even though they're limited, even though I'll misuse those words, still there is this eternal logos. And this logos, by the way, is the ultimate iconoclast. He breaks the image, the icon that we have of him. There are about 400 people at this conference, and so by my accounting, there is 400 different Jesuses in our hearts. Because we all have an image of Christ, and it almost inevitably looks suspiciously like ourselves. You want a gun-toting, cowboy-hatting, Republican Republican voting uh, Jesus, I can find a church for you. You want a red Jesus, a Marxist Jesus, a left-leaning Jesus, there's some congregations for you. But then here comes the eternal Lugus hanging on the cross, the most unreasonable and foolish thing, and shatters the image that you had, that we all had of him. And the eternal Lugus stands and says, not your business, law. But then he comes with gospel and says, nevertheless, that Friday that looks so bad by all accounts, nevertheless, I dare you to call it good. And we do. Let's end with some gospel, huh? God's going to get his good people into heaven. Isaiah 55, like the rains do not return empty-handed, God's going to get his good people into heaven. And the more I grow up, I look at 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter, in a different way. You know, during that uh, season in life where you're going to weddings every other weekend in summer, you're like, not 1 Corinthians 13 again. And then you mature and you understand that that agape love, that Greek word there is so beautiful and so full. But I think we skip over verse 12. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. I find that great comfort that there is a God, an eternal Logos, that knows me better than I know me. And that this God's working on me and taking my conscience captive and even giving me later in, or earlier in that, in that, in that uh, letter of Paul, gives me the mind of Christ. That I can reason like Abraham, <laughs> Abraham the saint, not Abraham the sinner, even though I will do both. That God knows me, and one day I will fully know. And I consider that a grace upon grace. Thank you. Uh, we're we're going to take uh, about a half an hour break. Uh, we're going to be back in the main room at 11.15 for our last speaker, Steve Paulson. Uh, if you need to move out of uh, your uh, your hotel room or do whatever you need to do, now would be the time to do it. And I'm going to ask you one other thing is just make sure you take all of your uh, any cups you brought in, all of your stuff with you, because uh, we're kind of done in this room. Uh, and have a great rest of your day, and we'll see you uh, in just a little bit.